Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be with you all. In case you don't uh, haven't had the chance to meet, uh, in case we haven't had the chance to meet each other yet, I'm making it like in case you haven't had the chance to meet me yet, which is obviously a thrill. But um, in case we haven't met, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. It really is a joy and privilege to have each of you here with us this morning, or here with us online this morning. We are grateful that you would be with us uh, this morning. And and if you are new to your Bible, as he said, we're going to go ahead and turn it in our Bible to Matthew chapter 11. If you're new to your Bible, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. So if you kind of just scroll to the table of contents and find the book of Matthew, uh, it's one of the easier books to find. And we'll be in verses 1 through 24 of Matthew chapter 11. You know, over the years, uh, you know, in just different sermons, you get different illustrations. And a lot of my illustrations are... You know, about, you know, growing up in times when I was a kid. And, but I don't think I've shared with you kind of a particular kind of tidbit about us uh, when I was a kid. And that's when uh, I was eight years old. Our neighbor um, was an axe murderer. And um, he was legally never tried or convicted or accused. Um, but, but eight-year-old Adam knew for sure this guy was an axe murderer. And no one else could see it, but I... I knew he was an axe murderer, and really, I had a lot of good evidence. I saw a movie, and the bad guy in the movie looked a lot like him, and so I was just convinced that this guy, I mean, he meant trouble, and so eight-year-old Adam just knew, like, this is that guy, and I'm, you know, I'm scared, so, you know, every time we walk, you know, on the way to, you know, the school bus, every time we walk by the driveway, like, I was going, I was booking it past his house, and you know, every time his parent or my parents would be, you know, talking to him in the driveway of the yard, I was just convinced I was going to be an orphan and needed a new plan. And, you know, they would bring a suit, you know, the neighborly thing to do. And I've never taken the first bite, even at Halloween. And this was scary for me. Even at Halloween, they would give out full-size candy bars, and I didn't go to the house. I mean, it was just, I was, yeah, it was a big deal. I was just convinced <laughs> that this is who this guy was. I was convinced of this until I actually met him. And found out that he was actually really nice, and he had grandkids, and he'd tell me about the grandkids, and what they like to play, and it's like, these grandkids seem like people, and all this kind of stuff, and I was looking around, and there were no axes anywhere, and he just began to have some doubts about who I really thought this person was. You know, I think what I did at eight years old is I, I sort of had an expectation of him, I sort of had this narrative, a narrative of him in my mind, and I just made him fit that narrative and that expectation. I don't know if you've ever done that with anyone. If you've ever, you know, sort of, you, you put somebody in a box, you sort of, you know, you, you did something to make them, you know, think that they, you know, that they're a certain way, and you just made everything fit that reality. Well, in Matthew chapter 11, people here are doing that with Jesus. They are making him fit their expectations rather than seeing who he really is. And this is far worse and far more dangerous than missing out on, a, on, a, on just a nice neighbor. And we need to recognize that we are just as prone as they were to make the same mistake of, of conforming Jesus to our expectations rather than seeing him for who he really is. So in our passage this morning, we want to, we want to see how we often can reduce Jesus to, to our expectations, how we often have difficulty of of seeing him rightly because we view him through the prism of our circumstances. So this morning we want to see who he really is, or who he is revealed to be, so that we can live in light, not of how he conforms to our expectations, but so we can live in light of who he really and truly is. So Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 24. 
When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And John answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor of good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is, a, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. What are you, Theresian? What are you, Bethsaida? But the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would, have been, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for, for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom. It would, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Okay, so that's happening in this text. It's, it's kind of one of these texts that's a little bit hard to even kind of get our handles on right away. So, 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 so what, what's happening in this text? So, very basically, right? Jesus is, is, is clearly upset. He's, very, he, he's clearly upset at sort of, of what's happening. And so to understand sort of what's happening, we're, we're going to look at three points this morning. And our, our first point is our wrong expectations. Our wrong expectations. So to note, this, this is a more unusual passage in some ways. You probably felt that as we were reading along, right? That, that typically in the Gospels, typically in the book of Matthew, we have explicit teachings, and we have parables, and we have miracles. And this one certainly doesn't fit that mold as much, right? And we're going to give more details as we go along, but to just have a basic overview of the passage, there, there's, Jesus is, is, is highlighting and noting and calling out the unbelief of, of, of three different groups. So first we have... John the Baptist, who, who has, for, he has a moment of doubt, he has a moment of unbelief, and Jesus is offering a, a mild and, but, but very real sort of rebuke to that. But then he expands that to say, now, 
Now, the, not just John the Baptist has a moment of that. There's an entire generation that does not see me rightly, that lives in unbelief, and he, he's expanding it to that. And then he calls out these different locations where he did his work, where he performed these miracles, and said there's, there's no faith in these towns and in these cities that they are marked with unbelief. And so he's, he's noting the unbelief and responding to that. So though John the Baptist is, is very commendable, and Jesus goes on to commend him, and we'll be talking more about that, there, there's this moment of doubt and unbelief for John as he sits in prison. He's, he's hearing what Jesus is doing, and, and it's not conforming to the expectation of what he has for Jesus to be doing, and so Jesus isn't meeting his expectations, so he goes and sends others to see, is this, is this the real Christ? Are, are you really the one, or... Have I been looking at the wrong place? Do I need to go start looking for someone else? So this is John the Baptist. This is the forerunner to Christ. This is the guy in prison for Christ. You know, right? This is the locust and honey. He's the outcast. He's, he's that guy. He's the guy who's been all in for Jesus before, the, you know, before anybody else had, had heard of Jesus. And now he's sitting there and wondering, are you really the one? No. Why did he wonder? Jesus did not do what John thought he was supposed to do. He was, he was not acting the way John thought he was supposed to be acting. See, he thought, John thought Jesus was the one who was going to overthrow and defeat unrighteousness. And now here is righteous John sitting in prison. John expected this holy, conquering Savior and here in verse 19, in the this, Jesus is the one who befriends tax collectors and sinners. Jesus fasted, or I'm sorry, John fasted. John called others to repentance. And Jesus here is eating and drinking joyfully with sinners. See, so John the Baptist had, had a moment of doubt, but then in verses 7 through 19, Jesus informs us that really this entire generation. It, it, it has no faith. This entire generation has been living in unbelief. And they have this vision of the conquering warrior that the Old Testament spoke, prophets spoke of. And what they're seeing is that Jesus is humble and lowly, that he's a servant. He's not fitting their expectations. And then we see in verses 20 through 24 that these cities don't believe. Now, some of these cities were, were Jewish. Some of these cities were right, his own people. Some of them were not. So they did not have ethnicity in common. What they had in common was that they had the same events, the same teachings, the same miracles. They saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ performing mighty deeds, yet they did not repent. Because they were not expecting the glory of God to appear like it did, so they dismissed what he did and lived in unbelief. So we're going to look at how they missed it, but first just to note... If John the Baptist missed who Jesus is, in verse 3, if he's really wondering, is this really you? If, if Jesus is noting of John, listen, you miss me, and you're the greatest in your generation. You see me with more clarity than anyone has seen me, and you miss me. And these towns all missed him. They saw the dead raised, the sick healed, storm stopped, sins forgiven, the blind see. They saw the deaf hear, the lame walk, lepers cleansed, and they missed him. They saw the miracles, and they missed him. Let's just acknowledge if, if John misses him, if 
this entire generation misses him. It's all these people who saw with their own eyes miss him. That we are vulnerable to missing Christ as well. That we are all vulnerable to interpreting him through our own experience and our own expected expectations. That we all we are all vulnerable to interpret him through the the prism we create for him. We're all vulnerable to to look at our circumstances and try to define him through them rather than seeing him for who he has revealed to be. So point number two is our wrong focus. Our wrong focus. I submit that this passage does not give us an exhaustive list of all the ways we view him wrongly. But I do think it gives us a couple of helpful categories of how people who had all the facts, saw the miracles, heard the teachings, you know, yet John who knew about Christ before Christ came, right? And yet now Jesus is here correcting John. He's calling out a generation. He's denouncing these towns because of their unbelief. So how did they, how did they both see him and completely miss him? I spend most of the time talking about how I, how I believe John missed him, not because... Not because it's the most egregious, but because actually I think it's the most subtle. And being the most subtle, I think it's the, it's the one we are most vulnerable to. It's a way that you can... He missed them in a way that, that at first can almost seem so harmless. But I think it's one that, that, that we, can, we can be vulnerable to our, and most in our own lives. And so, so what happened to John that, that he, he had that moment where he, he's really wondering, he's really wrestling with, am I following the wrong guy? Is this guy who I think... He's supposed to be. So what happened is Jesus did not fit the expectation of who he thought he was supposed to be, and that that led to that led to this this, this moment of, of unbelief. He didn't fit the framework that he had created for him, and so he began to doubt that he was really who he was. So what causes a man like John the Baptist, one completely sold out for the kingdom, who's in prison for the kingdom, the forerunner? to ask, am I supposed to be looking for somebody else? What, what, what happens? I submit that what happens is very common in that trials and suffering have a way of making us redefine and question and doubt what we believe to be true of the character of God. See, John had the prophetic vision of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And in, the, and in that kingdom, the upside-down world is turned right-side up, and there is righteousness restored, and righteousness reigns, and evil punished and vanquished. And to be clear, yeah, that, that's what Jesus promised. That's what the prophets foretold. That's what's supposed to happen. Then why is John sitting in prison at the hands of the ones who are evil? Jesus, why do you spend time with sinners eating and drinking while John rots in prison? So maybe, maybe you're not the one. Maybe I need to lower my expectations of who you are. Maybe this notion of being a friend of sinners is, is good for others, but it certainly doesn't seem good for me. See, here's what happens is that John was fitting Jesus and who he was into his current circumstances. He was, he was still turning his view of Jesus through, through what he could see of his current circumstances. And when it didn't add up, he began to change who he thought Jesus was. And Jesus has a response, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna spend our time on that this morning. But, but have you ever had a moment like that? You ever been 
tempted to, or have you ever allowed your, your perspective on your circumstances to define your Christ? Your perspective on your character to, uh, on your circumstances to define the character of God and what He's really like, because you're viewing it not through the perspective of what has He revealed in His Word, not what has He revealed in history, but what am I going through right now? Find yourself in some way without something and, and just question, well, maybe, maybe He's not really the provider I thought He was. You know, if, if God was really my protector, if he was really the one who would defend me, then, then why has this happened? If he's, if he's the Holy One, and if he's reigning and ruling right now, then why does it appear that the wicked are prospering and evil is just running amok all around me? Ever? You thought, man, I need to be challenges. I need to be a cost. But, but if you are all-powerful, if you are sovereign, if you are for me, then, then, then why do I feel weak and out of control and confused? I think there's this human tendency to, to, to look around and to, to look within and in real pain and in our lowest moments to define our view of God based on only what we can see out of the pit in that moment. And trials have a way of attempting to, to pull all of our sight down on them and having and pulling our sight and our vision down and, and to define our reality and our perspective through them. Trials have a way of, of attempting to obscure our view of the reality of God. Even when we believe we are looking, they, have, they, they attempt to define our vision of God. I believe this passage is a call again to focus on Christ, not to reduce Him on our, to our expectations, not to define Him by our immediate circumstances, but to look at who He is revealed to be. So the third point that I want to look at is a right perspective. A right perspective. So we are called to, to look at Christ. We are, not, we are not called to conform Him to our expectations, to, to our circumstances. So, so if we are to look at Christ... Who is he revealed to be? Well, he shows us a lot of who he is revealed to be in this passage. So, who is he revealed to be? Well, how would Jesus respond to John's inquiry? There's no need to look for another. I'm the one. John, you are right. What all the prophets said I would be, I am. I am righteousness. I am justice. I am the curse breaker. I am the kingdom of God is indeed here. That's why you see lame men walking. That's why you see the deaf hearing. That's why you see dead people being raised from the grave because I am that one. And then in verses 7 through 19, it's, 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 kind, of this confusing, it's kind of this confusing section at first. But what, what's going on in verse 7 through 19 is he's putting John in the great line of prophets who would foretell of the coming of Christ. Men like Elijah who would prepare the way, tell of the coming one. He's, he, 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 he's kind of saying, he, he's telling us how John, where John fits in history, that he's, he's sort of the, the last and the greatest of prophets. But he's not only putting John in sort of proper history, he's also saying, and by the way, I'm about to reveal what my kingdom is like. So I'm not only putting John in the right order, but I'm revealing the magnitude of the kingdom that is now here. 
And John, and he's sort of saying, and Christ is saying, I'm here. And, 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 but but what, what John told about, what all the prophets told about, what, listen, John, I'm the fulfillment. But John, just because you saw me coming, it doesn't mean you appreciate what has truly arrived. And just because you're in jail doesn't mean evil wins. Doesn't mean I'm not in control. It just means the story isn't over. You need to just recognize I am much bigger than your expectations. And you need you need to have a grander view than what you can see obscured by your circumstances. So here's what Jesus is ushering in with his coming and with his life and his death and his resurrection. A reality more glorious than anyone could foresee. Even John. And basically says, John falls in the great prophetic line of, of those who would look ahead to the one who comes. Verse 11, he says, there's no one been born of, of women that, that rises higher than John. John was the last and the greatest of the prophets. He was the last of this old guard, the old way, who, who, who saw through the prism of this old covenant, uh, this old covenant, where they had this partial and Temporary kingdom was sort of all they could see. So, no one born of a woman has been greater than John. No one ranks higher than John. No one could see with more clarity with John. But just to note, but what Jesus ushers in is a whole new kingdom and a whole new order so that now, even the least in this new kingdom, even the least in this new spiritual kingdom, even the last guy in, even the, the least deserving to be there, even the young child who, who the Spirit makes alive together with him and, and draws him to himself, even the youngest of children, even the least in this kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus has now ushered in is greater than him. And, and, and he's He's ushering in this new covenantal reality so that the Holy Spirit, that all who, 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 who in this new covenant see because they see that through, not just through human eyes, but because the Holy Spirit has indeed opened their eyes, they see with such clarity the glory of Christ and His kingdom in ways that they could only dream of before. Also, another implication of this, that where you rank in the earthly kingdom is of no significance if you are part of the heavenly one. To be least in the kingdom of Christ is of higher worth and higher value than whatever your status here. Which means one might be marginalized in this world. One might be unimportant in status in this world. One might be overlooked by this world. And to be so may be deeply painful. But don't have the wrong expectation. Status here has nothing to do with status in the kingdom. Being seen by others here is of no relation to being beloved in God's sight. Child of God, if you ever feel unimportant or overlooked in this world, if you ever feel marginalized in this world, that, that others just 
are of more import and worth. And Jesus wants to give us a perspective of the eternal kingdom to, to give us hope and joy in what's really true. What else do we see of Jesus? Not only does he usher in a new kingdom, not only does he reestablish the entire order of, of what it means to, 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 to sort of be a citizen in one kingdom versus the other, not only does he do all that, what else do we see of Jesus? We see that Jesus is all-powerful, that he heals the sick, the lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised, nothing stops him. He is all-powerful over everything. And so just because you don't always see what he's doing, that does not mean he's lost any power. That Jesus' power is not limited by, uh, by how much we can see it, by how much we see it in any number. That, that's not what his power is limited by. His hand, his arm is not shortened by how far we think he can reach. We see in this passage that Jesus is full of compassion. That others call him a friend of sinners in derision. And he wears it as a badge of honor. Which means to any sinner, he's not waiting for you to get your life in order before he will accept you and call you his own. He goes to you. And for anybody who we are praying for to come to know the Lord, He's not waiting on them to reform their lives and sort of clean themselves up a little bit so, you know, get all clean and sort of approach Him the right way. No, no. He's coming for sinners. You also see in this passage that He is holy. In verses 20-24, He calls down judgment on those places who wouldn't believe that Jesus Christ deals justly with sin. That we may have a perspective that right now that, that evil seems to be winning, that, that, sort of, that sort of unrighteousness seems to be in control, that just we may have a perspective as we look around in our own lives or at the world around us that injustice seems to be flourishing everywhere. That does not mean he has forgotten where he is unwilling to deal justly. He is holy. He said it would be better to be in Sodom, a city that was a city of absolute destruction because of their sin, than to still be this one who rejects him. Do not mistake his patience for passivity or his compassion that he has somehow lessened the standard. He is holy. His wrath is holy. His fury, his, his fury is holy and just. And it is coming for all who would see something of the work of the Lord, but refuse to trust and believe in the Lord. And he is so tender to give those same people who see his work, who have all the evidence of who he is and what he's done, and yet walk away in unbelief. He is so tender to give them yet another warning and more time. But his kindness and his tenderness is not meant to lead to indifference, it is meant to lead to repentance. 
Whether there are some in this room or there are some who are listening this morning who have seen something of the work of God, who know something of the work of God. My own testimony is that from the first 20 years of my life, I heard of the work of God. I heard of the cross, of the resurrection, of his miracles, of his power. And he was so patient with me. For two decades, I heard and never responded. He is giving you a chance to respond. He is giving you a warning and he is giving you more time. But he is also very clear that time comes to an end. Jesus is offering you a tender and holy warning. Unbelief is not a small sin. The sin of these cities was not evil in the way we typically define it. The sin of these cities was not anger and murder and malice. It was unbelief. It was seeing Jesus and never turning to Jesus. May it not be so with any of us. It can be so easy to reduce Jesus Christ to our expectations. May it never be so with any of us. It can be so easy to to remove our eyes off of Christ because we are so focused on our circumstances and, and reduce Him to what we can see through the prism of our circumstances. May it never be so with any of us. It is so easy to live in unbelief because we view him wrongly. May it not be so with any of us. Let us fix our eyes again on him. As we fix our eyes on him, let him transform not only who we are, but how we view all the things that happen in our lives. Closing prayer for the worship team to come and join us. Well, Lord, we do pray that you would help us to fix our eyes again on you. Lord, I pray that we would be a people, that every person in this room, every person who's watching at home this morning, would not reduce you to how you fit into our expectations, for how we expected you to work at any given moment, for how we expected you to lead through this trial, this circumstance. But Lord, would we see you for who you are revealed to be? Would you lift our eyes to to see you afresh again this morning? Lord, I do pray for anyone who has seen something of the glory of God, who has heard something of the glory of God, and has walked away in unbelief. I pray that you would help them not take another step but to see you for who you are and to respond in faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.